My name is Derek. It's great to see you guys this morning. Um, when you came in, you got one of these new sleek little bulletins. If you would take that out and uh, put your eyes on that, there's a bunch of good stuff in there. Um, the, the most important thing, at least the most urgent thing, is um, concerning next Sunday. How many people are going to show up right here next Sunday? Right here in this space. Anybody? Anybody feel like showing up here? Because the county fair will be here next Sunday in, in this area. So Grace Community Church will not be meeting here next Sunday. We're going to be meeting over in our Boston location, which is where our offices are. There's a small sanctuary over there. Many of you guys are familiar with that property. Uh, the address is in there, and we're doing four services so we can all fit. And as uh, Pastor John has said the last couple of weeks, we, uh, there's no shame in this. We are totally bribing you with pizza and ice cream to try and get many of you to come to our 5 and 7 p.m. services next Sunday. So um, there you go. That's, that's the big one. Just don't show up here. Some of you will. You'll realize this as soon as you get here, and then, um, and then you'll be trying to find out where it is. So that is that. Um, make sure, as I said, to check out all the other good stuff that is going on that you will find right in here. All right. So if this is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, you are catching us in the middle of a summer series called Bad Boys of the Bible. And that's where we're picking up today. I know that many of us have been really tuned into the Olympics, and we just are glued on to those games. And I also know that D.C. isn't that much of a baseball city. But has anyone been paying attention to what's going on with the Washington Nationals? I mean, this is amazing. They won again last night in dramatic fashion. They're 21 games over 500. They have the second best record in Major League Baseball. Now, that is particularly remarkable if you consider that the Washington Nationals payroll is around $80 million for the year, which is in the bottom 10 of, of all the teams in Major League Baseball. Now, if you compare that $80 million figure to the New York Yankees, it is $197 million. $197 million. And the Nationals actually have two more wins on the season than the Yankees do. Are there any Yankees fans out there? All right, you have you guys. I'm just curious, what is it like to just constantly having to deal with all those championships, those World Series, you know, every year being the favorite team? 20, 20 in, and the New York, you, know, you guys aren't afraid to speak up. It's beautiful. That's what I love about New York. Well, here's my thing. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the Yankees. Um, I kind of love to hate them. The Yankees are funny to me because pretty much every year, they're, they're the perennial favorite, right? I mean, pretty much all, just about every single season, they're predicted that they're going to be the, the team that's going to go to the World Series from the American League. Um, and what's fascinating to me is I find myself just from day one rooting against the Yankees just because they're the favorite. Not because I really have anything against them, but just because they're the favorite, you know? I like the underdog. I love to pull for that underdog team. And so when the Yankees are there, I'm just constantly rooting against them all season. And then they get to the playoffs, and I'm rooting against them in the playoffs. But it's a funny thing. Because when the Yankees aren't in the playoffs, I really could care less. I actually stop watching baseball. It's like, you know, it's, it's not that much fun for me. It's that team that you love to hate. But they're always favored. They're always the favorite. 
Today we're going to be talking about a favorite as we look at our bad boys of the Bible. We continue in that series. Today we're looking at a man named Joseph. We find his story in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Genesis, first book in the Old Testament, pretty easy to find. If you want to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37, that's where we're going to start. Joseph is actually the son of the bad boy we looked at last week, who was Jacob. And he, J- Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He was the favorite. We're going to pick it up starting in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 37. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word about him. Now, for those of you who grew up in a household where your parents played favorites among the siblings, you know that as a parent, playing favorites is like one of the worst things that you can do for your kids. Well, it's, it's bad enough that Joseph is clearly Jacob's favorite son. But then Jacob goes and does something just to make it so plainly obvious that nobody will be confused about who the favorite is. He gives Jacob this robe. I wanna, can we show this slide? Okay, he gives him this robe. Anybody a fan of um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor? Dreamcoat, seen that musical? Okay, this, has, this is nothing like what the robe looked like at all. It's absolutely nothing. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay, now, this is from a musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. This right here, this is actually why I hate musicals. <laughs> what in the world is going on here? That's not a robe. I don't know what that is. It's like a parachute or something, but it's not, it's not a robe, okay? So, in case you're wondering what the robe looked like, it didn't look like either of those first two pictures. Let's show the, the final slide, okay? Now, we have no idea what color the robe was, okay? No idea. There's all sorts of crazy ideas of, you know, what that robe looked like. Here's the, the most important thing that you need to know about the robe that Jacob gave to Joseph. It was a long robe, okay? It was long. So while all of his other older brothers would have had clothing that was much shorter so that they could go out and do the heavy labor day to day, Joseph was giving this, given this nice, long, cushy robe. And basically what it signified was, all your brothers are labor, you're upper management, okay? You were born to supervise, Joseph, and that's basically what Jacob does. He gives Joseph this robe, and so his brothers really can't stand him now. Verse 5, it says, one night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, They hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. See, we were out in this field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up. Then all your bundles gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think that you're going to reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about them gets better soon joseph had another dream and again he told his brothers about it hey listen i've had another dream he said the sun the moon and the 11 stars bowed low before me this time he told the dream to his father as well as his brothers but his father scolded him 
What kind of dream is that? He asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? Now, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and just say, Joseph is not very perceptive. Like when it comes to human dynamics and human relationships, there's something that Joseph just isn't picking up on here. You ever had somebody that really hates you or you really hate somebody? It's not hard to pick up that vibe. Do you know what I'm saying? It's palpable, not just between the two parties, but everybody in the room can feel it. And yet Joseph, it's like he's totally oblivious to this. And so when he has these dreams, okay, he has got to show a little discretion. I mean, it's funny, we're doing this Bad Boys series, you know, and of all the bad boys we're going to look at in this series, Joseph is the best of all of them. By far and away, he's the best. But the one place where where we're really going to give Joseph a hard time and beat him up a little bit is in this relationship with his brothers. I mean, he just seems so completely clueless. He has got to tame his tongue. As a result of sharing these dreams, his brothers are just seething. I mean, they cannot stand him. Well, then what happens is his brothers, they go out into the fields and they're tending their sheep quite a ways away from home. And so Joseph decides he needs, I mean, uh, Jacob, the father, decides he needs upper management to go and, and check up on the brothers to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So he sends out the favored son, Joseph, to go check on his brothers. Joseph's like, sure, I'll go. Go out to my brothers. Yeah, we, we, we get along great. It's awesome. Yeah, I'll go out there. We pick it up in verse 18. So he goes out. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And then there's some discussion at this point, and they're figuring out, okay, should we kill him, should we not? And eventually what they decide is, let's just throw him in. Let's not kill him and then throw him in. Let's just throw him in the cistern, okay? Because, you know, it could get too messy. Let's just, let's just throw him in there. And then one of the other brothers named Judah pipes up, and he says in verse 28, well, you know, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. So instead of hurting him, why don't we just sell him to those Ishmaelite traders? After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And it says his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Then we see in Genesis 39.1, it says, that Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, and he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So here Joseph goes from the favorite, the golden boy, the favored son in his father's house, to a slave in the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian. But all hope wasn't lost for Joseph, because despite being a slave, God gave Joseph favor with his master Potiphar. And quite quickly, Joseph actually was kind of given a a tremendous amount of responsibility in in Potiphar's house to where he was actually responsible for all the other slaves and all the details of the house to where basically he was like running Potiphar's household. So 
considering what's happened to him, considering that his brothers have basically tried to kill him, then sold him into slavery, and now he is a slave in Egypt, things are going about as good as could be expected for him. I mean, he's got favor with his master. But there's one little problem. Potiphar's wife, she has her eyes on Joseph. She sees him. He's a rather good-looking guy. And so she starts pursuing Joseph, and she starts saying, Hey, Joseph, why don't you come and sleep with me? Come on, let's go, let's go, come to bed with me. And she keeps pursuing him, and he keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That wouldn't be right. I'm not going to do that. And she keeps advancing, and he keeps saying, no, no, no. I can completely relate to Joseph here. You know, I feel like I'm constantly having to tell my wife, Becky, baby, I am more than just a piece of meat, okay? (laughs) You know, I have feelings too. You know, there's conversations that I want to have, you know. It's not just all about that, okay? I just don't want to be a piece of meat. So I completely get where Joseph, you know, I I feel, I'm feeling him. I'm feeling him. So she keeps advancing, he keeps declining. Well, then one day, he's all alone in the house. There's no other slaves around. And he's taking care of business, doing what he needs to be doing. And she comes in, and she grabs him, and she actually pulls off a piece of his clothing. She says, come to bed with me right now. And he runs out of there, but she's got a piece of his clothing, and she's ticked. And so she says that he tried to sleep with her. Well, when Potiphar found out about this, look what it says in Genesis 39, 19. It says, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph, and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. So now Joseph has gone from favored son to slave in Egypt, now to prisoner in Egypt. But once again, God's favor was with Joseph. And God gave him favor in the prison and favor with the warden. And so after a while, he started to gain responsibility in the prison and be able to be responsible for the other prisoners. And so he just is given more responsibility in the prison. About this time, there's two guys who are in the prison with him. The king's cupbearer and the king's baker. And it was not hard to make royalty angry with you back in those days and uh, get thrown in prison. And so they're, they're in, the, in the jail with Joseph. And they have these dreams, and they have no idea what they mean. And so they come to Joseph, and Joseph actually explains the dreams. It's very good for the cupbearer. It's very bad for the baker. So anyway, the, the, the dream that the cupbearer had, Joseph's like, look, you're actually, this dream means you're going to be restored. You're going to get your job back. You're going to be back with King Pharaoh, and everything's going to be great. And then he says to him, he says, hey, and when you get back to the king, can you remember me? Like, just, just remember me. You know, put in a good word for me. I'm stuck here. I got falsely accused. You know, maybe you could help me out. And so the cupbearer, it says the cupbearer goes off, he's restored to his position, and he completely forgets about Joseph. You you just wonder if in that moment Joseph was there thinking, you know, maybe this is my big chance. Now, God God might have orchestrated this, ordained this moment so that so that I you know this guy could put in a good word for me. And then years go by and he hears nothing. He's just wallowing in this prison with no hope of getting out. Well, a couple of years go by, and now King Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has a dream, and it freaks him out, and he can't figure out what it means. And he's asking around, 
And all of a sudden, the cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. I know somebody who can interpret dreams. It's Joseph. He's down in the, in the prison, this Hebrew slave. And so Joseph gets summoned by King Pharaoh. And Joseph proceeds to tell King Pharaoh what his dream meant. He says to King Pharaoh, he says, listen. There are going to be seven years of great prosperity in Egypt where all the crops are going to grow like crazy and it's just going to be unbelievable food everywhere. It's going to be awesome. But after those seven years, there's going to be seven years of famine in this land. Nothing's going to grow. It's going to be terrible. And people from all over the place are going to, are going to be desperate for food. And so Joseph says, in these seven years, what you need to do is you need to make sure to save up and store as much of this food as we can so that we can have it in the time of famine. And we need to appoint someone who's wise, who can oversee this whole thing. Well, Pharaoh turns to him and he goes, that's beautiful. You're hired, man. And this is a crazy roller coaster ride that Joseph's life takes, okay? Favored son in his father's house, sold into slavery in Egypt, imprisoned. And then all of a sudden, he rises to the second most powerful position in Egypt, the right-hand man of King Pharaoh. Man, he is like on top of the world. Life is good, right? Life is beautiful for Joseph now, right? Well, yes and no. I think we would probably describe it more as bittersweet. If you look at Genesis chapter 41, verses 50 to 52, you get some great insight into Joseph and into how he felt and into what life looked like for him in Egypt. It says, during this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, and check this out, because it's very significant. When he names his sons, it speaks to where he was. His first son was named Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Do you see how deep that pain runs for him right there? It says, Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Joseph had a very difficult life. And these scars of betrayal at the hands of his brother, and then this scar of being falsely accused and wrongly in prison, it ran deep into the heart of this man. And he said, you know, in the second son's name there, he's admitting, yeah, God's made me fruitful. I mean, he, he's had some prosperity. He's had some favor. He's had some fruitfulness in this land. But he still describes it as the land of his grief. Joseph was hated. He was enslaved. He was falsely accused. And he was in prison. And what's fascinating to me about this story is that for all Joseph goes through in his life, for all the stuff that he experiences in his life, you know what Joseph never does? He never gets ugly. He never fires back. It's amazing to me. He's betrayed by his brothers. He, he never, he, he, he never kind of rails back at them. 
it's also, it's fascinating to me, especially when you think about who his father was, Jacob, that we looked at last week. Jacob, he was Mr. Independent. He was the schemer, the conniver. So he was always scraping and clawing to get what he knew was rightfully his. And he didn't care how he went about doing it. He would do it however he wanted. This was Joseph's dad. And yet Joseph never did that. Never did that. In all those situations, he didn't try and scrape and claw and figure out a way. Well, how am I going to get mine back? How am I going to steal to get what's rightfully mine? How am I going to get back to where I was? He never does that. He simply accepts his situation as it is. He continues to put one foot in front of the other and work hard. And he acts with the utmost integrity. I told you he was the best. He's the best of the bad boys. See, Joseph never let his circumstances compromise his character. And that's one of the takeaways for me. When I think about Joseph, I think about something I can emulate in my life. This is it. He never let his circumstances compromise his character. Don't ever let your circumstances compromise your character. Don't ever let it define who you are. Don't be defined by your circumstances, but by your character. So Joseph never gets ugly. Fascinating stuff to me. The other thing that's equally fascinating is he never complains to God. He never curses God. He never cries out to God and kind of shakes his fist and goes, God, where are you in all this? Never does that, ever. That's amazing to me. Because you see, that's just not me. When stuff's not going right in my life, I take it up with God immediately. I'm like, okay, God, seriously, what the heck is going on here? Where are you? Why am I going through this? What in the world is happening? I'm much more like the psalmist. If you look at the psalms, there's 150 of these beautiful prayers in the Bible. And if you've never really looked at them, it's fascinating when you start to read through the psalms right in the middle of the Old Testament you'll see that the majority of the psalms are actually, the, the number one type of psalm in there, it's, it's called the lament. It's actually the cry to God. In our agony, in our suffering, in our not understanding where God is and what's going on, it's just these prayers, and they are just real and raw and just right to God. This is much more, I, I'm, I'm not, some of you guys might be like, Joseph, you're just like, hey, you know, whatever. It's cool. It happens. We just have faith. We just move on. You know, don't blame God. Don't take that up with God. I'm much more like the psalmist. And I love the fact that these psalms are in here. Let's look at Psalm 13. The psalmist writes, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? He's saying, God, where the heck are you? How long is this going to go on? Why is this happening? I love that these are in the Bible because that's, it's so much of kind of how, when I'm going through this stuff, what I do with God. I'm much more like the psalmist. I'm much more like Job. Now, if you've never heard of who Job is, Job is written about, there's a book called Job in the Old Testament. For me, that book is one of the greatest books to read on the subject of God and human suffering. Job was this man 
who was described as upright and blameless in the eyes of God. Yet despite that, he went through tremendous suffering in his life. He lost all of his kids. He lost everything that he had. He lost his health. And he was just sitting, just suffering, miserable. The book of Job, it's like 40 chapters long. And for the first 30 chapters, it's basically Job just trying to figure out what in the world is going on and why is this happening to me? And he has some friends that come around and they're all speculating as to why this happened to him and why he's suffering. And Job's trying to figure it out. And finally, about Job chapter 30 or so, Job just goes on this rant. He's kind of just, I mean, he's just kind of coming unglued a little bit. Never curses God, but he's, he's coming unglued. And he basically just starts to recount his life. And he says, you know, I've trusted God. I've, I've given to the poor. I've done everything that I'm supposed to be doing. I've never retaliated. I've never been ugly. I've never been hateful. And he's just going on and on. He's like, how in the world is this happening to me? And it culminates in Job 31, 35, where he goes to this huge thing of all this stuff that I've done in my life. Why is this happening to me? And then he goes, let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly, he says. He basically says, God, why am I suffering? What is the deal? In Job chapter 38, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, God shows up to answer Job. He shows up in this whirlwind. And he basically says to Job, you want answers? Channel your inner, a few good men. You want answers? And then God proceeds, instead of giving Job answers, to come at Job with a list of his own questions. He says, Job, so where were you at the beginning of time? Where were you when I laid out this whole creation? Where were you when this was all going on, Job? And he just fires question after question after question after question at Job. And you know what's crazy about God's response? So Job's like, why? You know, tell me why, God. God never answers Job's question. He never answers it. He never directly comes at Job and gives him a straight answer. Yet at the end of this exchange, Job is completely satisfied. He's like, you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. He, he is completely fine. He has actually had the answer that he needed. God never gives Job an answer to his question of why am I suffering, God? Never gives an answer. You know what he gives Job? He gives him his presence. He gives him his presence. He shows up and is present with Job, and that is all Job needed. It's the exact same thing with Joseph here in the Genesis story. We sit here and we go, how did Joseph endure all this stuff? I mean, how did he continue to act with integrity? How did he never cry out? How how was he just always able to overcome and always respond in the right way? How did that work? 
What did that look like? Well, here's how it worked. We read in Genesis 39.1 already. That's when it said that Joseph was taken to Egypt and he was made a slave in Potiphar's house. You know the very next verse, 39.2? This is what it says. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. And then after that, he gets wrongly accused and he's thrown in prison. And that culminates in Genesis 39.20. He's now put in prison. The very next verse, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and he showed him his faithful love. Just got one thing for you to write in today, if you'd like, and it's this. God's answer to our suffering is his presence. God's answer to our suffering is his presence. There are some of us here in this room right now, and just the mention of the word suffering, instantly, I mean, you're already, it it transports you to, to, to somewhere else right now. Because you're in the midst of tremendous difficulty, tremendous adversity in your life, tremendous pain that you're experiencing right now. There are others, and as we get on this subject of suffering, your mind instantly flashes back to a a really difficult time in your life where you've been through something. And you can feel it as if it were yesterday. People, good-hearted Christian people, have all these different answers that they try and give us for our suffering. Why we're suffering. But the problem with those answers is that when we're in the midst of our suffering, when we're in the midst of our pain, we're in the midst of whatever it is we're facing, it's so deep, it's so emotional, it's so before us, it's so overwhelming, it's not logical. Okay, it's a billion dollar question that we have. Why am I going through this? It's larger than life, this question of why am I suffering? The problem is that when good hearted people, Christian people, try and give answers to someone who's in the midst of that billion dollar question and struggle about their suffering. You know what it comes out as? A five-cent answer to a billion-dollar question. And you might have had one of those answers before as you were wrestling through or trying to figure something out of why you suffered. And someone says to you, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. I don't know. You know, God sometimes just, you know, Bible says he disciplines those he loves the sons. You know, maybe there's something that God's doing in your life. I don't know. At least with me, I felt like times I've gone through my suffering, God was allowing that so that I'd be able to become stronger, be tougher. A lot of times God allows us to have something like that happen to us so then we're better ministers to other people. We understand their suffering. And it goes on and on. You know, I don't know, but I guess that's just God's will for your life. These are all things you can actually quote scripture 
to try and back up your answers. But the problem is there is a billion-dollar struggle that's going on in the person who is in the midst of that suffering. No matter what answer you give, it just comes out as a five-cent answer to their struggle. People have all kinds of answers for why it is we suffer. God's answer, God's answer is always his presence. It's always his presence. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, it says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, we read this around the Christmas season, don't we? We read this every Christmas season, and there's usually snowflakes falling, and there's Christmas music going, and it's just this great time as we're looking forward to Christmas, and we read this verse, and we say, oh yeah, this is Mary, you know, and she's getting ready to give birth to Jesus, and they called him Emmanuel, and you're already thinking about ripping the presents open. It's so exciting, you know? We, we, we read this, we read this, we read this, we've completely lost sight of what this is actually saying to us. You see, They said, they will call Jesus Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. You see, here's the deal. God looked down at this crazy, stressed out, messed up, broken world that we live in, full of suffering and full of pain. Looked down at his creation. And he said, you know what? I know what I need to do. I know what the answer is to all this suffering and to all this pain. I am going to come down and be with my people. I'm going to come and I'm going to be with them. You know, that's the whole point of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? I talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus didn't come down to die on a cross and hand out free tickets to heaven. Okay? If that's what you think Jesus is, that's a cheap version of Christianity. Just, oh, got my ticket. Okay, now I'm good. That is, you're totally missing the boat if you think that that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came down to this earth to be with us, to be with us, to identify with us in our struggles, in our pain, in our joys, in all of it. He was fully God and fully human. It's one of the craziest craziest things you can ever wrap your brain around, okay? But he basically went through and understood what temptation was like. Never sinned, but understood what that felt like. He understood suffering and trial and betrayal and all the things that we go through, death of a friend, all kinds of stuff Jesus experienced. He came to be with us. He didn't come to hand out tickets. He came and this is what I love. This, this is why I follow Jesus Christ, okay? Because I, Jesus Christ can identify with what I go through in this life. I follow after him, and he's with me. He gets life. He understands. He relates completely. God with us. I think it's pretty cool in Matthew 28. Verse 20, he makes us a promise. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a promise from Jesus Christ. 
always with us. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, he tells us that he sends his spirit. Again, this is just mind-blowing stuff, okay? I mean, I don't get how it works at all. But he sends his spirit to live within us, to constantly be with us, to give us strength that we don't have, to help us endure things that we don't think we can endure on our own by his spirit that's with us all the time. If you're here this morning, and you're going through suffering, you're going through pain and heartache, I cannot encourage you enough to consider putting your faith in Jesus Christ, not for the ticket to heaven, not for the ticket. Because Jesus says, look, I am actually God, came down to this earth to be with you, to identify with you. I know what you're going through. I'm here to help you. I'm always with you. Putting faith in Jesus is basically just saying, you know what? I believe that. I'll take your help, Jesus. I'll, I'll gladly take your spirit to live inside me. Maybe you're here and you put your faith in Jesus Christ a long time ago. But if you really had to stop and think about it, you're like, you know what? Yeah, I, I kind, of, kind of felt like I checked the box and I grabbed that ticket. That's not, that's not what a relationship with Jesus Christ is. It's not a ticket. It's not getting to heaven. That's really, that's, that's not it. That's a tiny piece of it, really. It's the God of heaven and earth come down to be with us. That is God's answer to our suffering. He's here with us right now. And he invites us to call on him whenever we need to, anytime. His line's always open. So let's call on him right now. If you join me, let's pray. Lord God, um, we thank you for a chance to get together. Lord, whenever we talk about suffering and pain and the things that Joseph went through and as we relate to them in our own lives, God, uh, we know that that brings things up, brings things to the surface. Things get emotional, God. Um, That's hard. But I am just so thankful that you don't give five-cent answers to our billion-dollar struggles about why we suffer. God, first and foremost, I just want to pray for your healing hand upon every single person in this room who has ever had someone throw a nickel their way when they were in the midst of tremendous pain people who just loved them, wanted the best for them, were just trying to help them. But it was like a dagger in the heart. God, I pray as only you can that you would heal those wounds. God, for those who right now are in the midst of something, right now, Lord, we know that you don't show up and you don't give us some brilliant theological response to what it is we're going through. Often it's years later that we figure this stuff out, that you reveal it to us. And we thank you, God, that you're deeper than that, that you're bigger than that, that you just simply show up and you tell us, you know, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I am with you. I hung on a cross for you. I've suffered for you. I know suffering. I know pain. Lord, 
let that be just a tremendous comfort and strength to know that we never walk this life alone, ever. For those of us, God, who just, you know, we're dying. We're dying for just, just a taste of your presence. You just feel so far from us. God, I pray your spirit would just move in this room. I pray, God, that, that whatever, you know, just you would just ignite some stuff, God, that you would just, every single person here would just be reminded of your powerful presence in their lives, God. Myself included, God. I hunger for that. I long for that. We need your presence, God. That's why we're here. We're calling out. We're asking that you'd answer. Lord, as we sing this last song about how you never let go of us, God, there's some of us who believe that and some of us who don't. Some of us who really doubt that. I know at times I do, God. Just... Let us declare that truth. Let it, let it sink into our minds and our souls and our spirits. I pray, God, for anyone who wants prayer, that, they, that you would just allow them to just, just to be drawn over to that prayer team against that wall, just to seek prayer. Have somebody pray for them. God, we need your presence. We're asking for just a great reminder of that this morning. We thank you in Christ's name.